So I've chosen this morning to look at Luke 24, 36 through 49 for our Easter sermon. So would you open up to Luke chapter 24? If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. So don't be shy. This is one of those stories about the disciples and their interaction with Jesus. And it's very rich, the actual telling of it. And so I want to encourage you to uh, take a Bible. So uh, if we could have Jason uh, hand out some of the Bibles, and Brent maybe could pass one out. Just raise your hand if you need a Bible, and uh, we'll get one to you. And um, it's on page uh, 610 in that Bible that that we hand out. Now this is immediately after the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And... It really focuses on the response of the disciples to the risen Lord, to the risen Jesus. And one of the things I love about this particular incident, this event, is how real the disciples are. Uh, Their emotions are right on their sleeves, and you can see that. And the reason that's important is because it's like an entryway for us to connect into the story. Because we're human, they're human, we have the same kind of response to this amazing event that's taken place. And so we can connect with them. We can understand who they are and uh, get into the story that way. So I want you to look for that as I read it. The risen Lord has just met with two disciples. And they've been walking on the road to Emmaus. And he's been opening their eyes and explaining to them who he is. And now the disciples are gathered in the room. And we pick up what happens there in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. We could translate ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning first from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. We are in a series on heaven. We're the third week of it, but we've got three more weeks. So if you're visiting us today and you want to learn more about heaven, we're going to be talking about heaven a bit today, but we'll be talking about heaven over the next three weeks. And we encourage you to come back and and join us and and learn with us as we explore what the scriptures teach on the subject of heaven. But there are some lessons 
for us on heaven in this text because it's as if Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is coming from that faraway land, heaven, and he's visiting the disciples while they're still here on earth. And we get to see sort of the interaction between these two and the differences between them. And we get a little bit of insight into what heaven is like. And so we're going to explore that together a bit this morning. And I have three questions for us under this one topic. The topic we're going to talk about is this. Simply that Christ is the key to heaven and faith turns the lock. Christ is the key to heaven and faith turns the lock. In fact, why don't you say that with me? Christ is the key to heaven. Faith turns the lock. Good. I want to sear that into your mind. If you take anything away from this morning, I hope you will take that, that idea with you. There's three questions we're going to look at. What is heaven like? Who has the key? And how do you turn it? What is heaven like? Who has the key? And how do you turn it? So let's ask this first question. What is heaven like? And I'm just going to say right off the bat, there is no way that I'm going to even come close this morning in the time that we have to painting any bit of a picture that would begin to match the wonder and the splendor and the beauty and the glory of heaven. I'm going to throw a few strokes on the wall, but that's about all I can do. Um, We've been studying heaven, and one of the things we've noted is there's a lot of misconception about the nature of heaven. And this text helps us to understand uh, and correct some of that. Mostly having to do with the physicality of heaven. Heaven, turns out, in the biblical description, is a very physical place. But so often in our imaginings and because of a failure of teaching and studying, we don't have a proper conception of heaven. So as Gary Larson, the far side uh, uh, um, uh, comic strip writer put it, if you put up the next slide, this is the picture of heaven that we often have. We'll get it. There it is. Um, A guy sitting on a cloud, and he says, I wish I'd brought a magazine. And when we have that image in our mind, it ends up being the heavens not very appealing, and so we're not so excited to go there. And it actually can have a negative effect on our whole spiritual journey, our whole, whole spiritual walk, because we don't have a full picture of what heaven is, and we're not leaning into that. Uh, another example in the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, right in the very beginning, um, Huckleberry Finn is telling the story of uh, Miss Watson, who's now taking care of him. And, you know, he's a rough and tumble, you know, Huckleberry Finn. He's the, the quintessential rough and tumble boy who loves to explore and do things. And she's trying to get him to go in the right direction and correct his behavior. So she tells him about heaven and hell. And listen to her description of heaven. Um, he, he, he tells it this way. She went on and told me all about the good place. That's heaven. She said, all a body would have to do there was to go around all day long with a harp and sing. This is a young boy who loves to be outside in the river playing and stuff, and she's painting this picture. Uh, And his response is predictable. So I didn't think much of it. He didn't think much of heaven because the picture of heaven was not touching the deepest parts of who he was and really who God had made him to be. And this is what's happening to many of us. I fear that because of an improper understanding of the nature of heaven... We're not nearly as excited about heaven as we ought to be. And it turns out, as we study heaven in the scriptures, it's actually a much more physical kind of place than we would have expected. Uh, It's not a diminishing of what's physical. And when we talk about spirits and ghosts and playing harps on clouds and turning into angels, thank you, you know, it's a wonderful life. No, we don't turn into angels when we get to heaven. Um, Angels are different. 
Um, so we have these, this misconception about heaven, then, um, then it's, it, it's, it's not nearly as appealing, and it, it loses a sense of its physicality. And we think of it as actually a diminishing of this earth and this life. But the, what's true is the reverse, that heaven is actually the inten- intensification of God's creation, not the diminishing of it. So that in heaven, a sunrise, like we got to witness this morning when we were at the sunrise service, will not be less beautiful, it will be more wonderful and glorious and beautiful. Or a mountain scene will not be diminished in heaven, it will be, we'll be seeing it in, in true color for the first time in heaven. When we think about water, the beauty of water, when you look out of the ocean or you're, you're sitting next to a river and the, the light is glistening off of it and shimmering and, and you say to yourself, what an incredible, beautiful thing. This is merely a shadow of what it will be like in heaven as the scripture teaches. I love what C.S. Lewis does with that idea. He says, um, he imagines a, an old earth person in heaven. He says, heaven is, is such an intensification of the real that an old earth person like you and I would be almost like a shadow in heaven. So if they were to step out on the water, they wouldn't even sink into the water because heavenly water is so much more robust it's, it, the Bible doesn't teach that, but it's a way of, of, understand, of thinking about heaven in the expansiveness of it, in the beauty that is not less than, it is greater than what we experience now. We love to take pictures of beautiful scenes, and then we put these filters on them, right? And you got your phone and, you know, Instagram, and you take a picture, and it's pretty cool, and I'm in this pretty neat place, but then I put the filter on it, and everything pops, Right? And uh, it's like I was even in a better place. Uh, people, people look at it and they go, wow, I wish I were with you right now because look how beautiful it is where you are, you know. Well, in heaven, there will be no filters needed when we take pictures because it will already be at the maximum intensity of beauty and glory and splendor and wonder. And then if you were to cross over, what does that mean for people? What will people be like? And this is what we have in this particular text. We have a a notion of what people will be like because we see Jesus in his glorified body. And it turns out he's in a physical body. Now, of course, he's not going to be affected by the decay of this world. He's just overcome death, right? So this is a, a, a glimpse of the heavenly body that will be received by all who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a perfected body that hasn't been tinged with age or sickness or death or sin. It's the way the image bearer was intended to be in, in God's creation. And this is what we look forward to in heaven. And this passage contributes a great deal because when we encounter Jesus, we see him in his resurrected body. And he says these amazing things in this text. In the first part, he says, see my hands and feet, which is something hard for us to get our minds around. Jesus still has apparently the scars from his time on the cross, his hands and feet. And he's identifiable because of that. So we as people will not lose our identity in heaven. We will be recognizable for who we are. We will continue to be us, just the perfected version. Take out all the sin. Take out all the selfishness. Take out all the sickness. Every ache and pain. Every bit of decay and, and agedness. Take that all out. We will still be us, but in the perfected way. He says, touch me. 
Now, spirits on clouds don't get touched, but Jesus is physically present. In fact, he talks about being of flesh and bone, and you can't get any more real than that. Jesus is of flesh and bone. He doesn't say, you know, do you have a harp that I could play? He says, I'm hungry, like a real person would, would be after spending three days in a grave and not eating anything because they don't put food in graves for people. And so Jesus comes out and he's just naturally hungry. And they give him, it's, it's almost so mundane, they give him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate before them. So if you ever wondered about the physicality of heaven, here's your answer. Actually, yes, it's, it's a physical place where you live and you breathe and you eat and you do. It's just all the brokenness and sin and evil and decay of this world is gone. That's what heaven is. And even better than, than, than the physical nature of it is the relational side. The greatest thing about heaven is that God is present there. And that we get to be in close proximity. And there's something deep within inside of us that's, that was placed there by God. The deepest yearning we have is to be in the presence of God. To enjoy fellowship and relationship with our maker. And that's... The greatest thing about heaven is that God is most fully manifest in heaven. Think about the reunion that you have had with somebody that you missed for a long time. And I don't know what experiences you've had. Maybe you've been separated from a beloved person uh, for weeks or months. And, and that moment when you, when you reconnect with that person and you're filled with joy. And you just, as soon as you see them, every, you know, your, your heart begins to beat fast. And you're so excited to be reunited. The disciples are feeling this with Jesus because they thought they had lost him and they'd spent all this time with him and he was everything to them and he was the best person they'd ever known and he loved them like nobody had ever loved them and they couldn't imagine. And then he was suddenly taken away from him in this brutal, painful, shameful, disgusting way, put up on the cross, the lowest of the low. And all of a sudden, there he is in the room. And their hearts... And their minds can't catch up with each other. And they're filled with joy and confusion. But they love to be with Him. And this is how it is to be in heaven. is to be with a person that we love the most, even if we don't fully understand that yet. But we will when we're there. All right. Like I said, we can, we can only paint with broad strokes about heaven. It's a little bit like... When Marco Polo returned from the east in the 12, 1300s, he came back and he came to his hometown of Venice and he started to tell the people about the things that he discovered in his 25-year journey in the east. And, and he told them about the palace that was so big, it dwarfed any cathedral that had been built to that time. And you could seat 6,000 people to a banquet in this palace, Xanadu, that he had seen. And every person would have a plate of gold. They never dreamed of anything like that. They said, Marco, you're pulling our leg. And he told them about the gold plates and this food. They had this thing called pasta. (laughs) That's where it came from. And, and it was delicious. Obviously, they liked it when they figured it out. Um, 
And they had silk gowns, and they actually had steel. They were using steel in construction. And Marco Polo told them about this world, and they could not wrap their minds around it. And they said, you're just, you're making this up. And they rebuked him for telling tall tales. And he persisted to describe it. And at the very end of his life, as he was on his dying bed, his last words were that, I've only been able to tell you of the half of it. All the wonderful things I've said are only the half of what I saw in my 25-year travel. And and that's kind of how it is for us on this old earth when we think about the new heaven and the new earth. We catch glimpses, we hear stories, and it seems to surpass anything that we could dream or imagine. And we almost want to poo-poo it and say, no, that couldn't possibly be. But the scriptures continue to proclaim, this is heaven. It is the place of God's presence. It is a place of beauty. It is the place of relationship. And it is what your heart has longed for since your very first breath. And God knows that. That's what heaven's like. Who has the key then to heaven? How do we, how do we go there? See, here's our problem is we're not really ready for heaven because of sin. Now think about this a little bit. God's awesomely holy. He's perfectly holy. He's untainted by sin, unblemished by evil. There is no decay or loss or foulness in God. And so he stewards this place that is also a place of perfection. That's what heaven will be. Uh, And then... We've got these people who are tainted by sin, who nevertheless are intended to populate this heaven, but they can't go there now because were they to go, they would be a corrupting influence. So what is God going to do with that? That's the problem. And the key solution to that problem is Jesus Christ. That's what the scripture teaches from front to back. Jesus is the solution to that problem. He is the one who enables us to get in the room, as it were. He appears in this room. He enables us to get in the room. And the way he does it is by suffering on the cross to expunge our sin, to take care of our sin. It's astonishing to me that the whole Bible teaches this point and that 700 years before Jesus went and went to the cross, you had somebody like Isaiah explaining what he would do. So we read in Isaiah 53, 12, he's talking about the suffering servant, the Messiah who would come, and here's what he would do. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. In fact, that's just one of many verses within that whole chapter that explain what Christ ended up doing 700 years later on that cross to address the problem, the sin problem that kept us from being fit and ready for heaven. And the result of Christ's work on that cross is counterintuitive for us as human beings. When we think about religion, typically we think about what we will do in order to earn God's favor. Most of the time we think about religion, we think about religion as systems for doing well, systems for doing what's right. Moral systems. And most religions are built on that. Here's what you do. 
Jesus turns that all around. Christianity turns that all backwards. It's not about what you do to earn favor with God. It's about what God has done to bestow his favor upon you. This is the radical counterintuitive message of Christianity. We don't earn favor with God. It is a gift. And God secured it on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. Making our sins, taking our sins and atoning for them there. So what is our response? Our response isn't to do a bunch of things in order to earn God's favor. But it is to trust, to believe, to have faith in Jesus Christ as the one who secures our favor with God. Who makes us fit for heaven. Who expunges our sin. That's the story of the Bible from front to back. So when you ask the question, who has the key? You could say Jesus has the key. Or you could say, in fact, Jesus is the key to heaven. Jesus is the key to heaven. That's what the Bible presents him as. Because he's the one who makes us fit for the heavenly place. And then my third question is, how do you then turn that key? So you have the key, Jesus Christ. How do you put it in the lock and turn it? And we've already talked about it. Our response is to trust in Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to have faith in Jesus. The only problem is that we, it turns out, are a lot like the disciples. And having faith is not always as easy as we might expect. And some of you here this morning might be saying, well, I love this story but I'm having a hard time believing it. I love the, the teaching about Jesus. I, I love what you're saying or what the Bible is saying. But help me believe. Help me accept. Help me trust that it's really true. And it turns out that, that, that the disciples had some of those, that same response. They were startled. They were overwhelmed by the surprise. It says they were frightened. And the Greek word there is it's an intensified word, meaning they were extremely afraid when Jesus came into the room. Some of us may feel that way. When we consider the person of Jesus Christ, it might be a bit overwhelming to us. They were troubled, it says. And literally, that's a word that refers to waters, pools that are troubled. A troubled pool. It's shaking. I saw a picture of... um, A pool during an earthquake one time, and the the waters were troubled. And that's the image that's stuck in my mind for this word. And sometimes, figuratively, our souls can be like that. And the disciples were like that when Jesus entered the room. Their souls were troubled, like a pool being shaken in an earthquake. And there's ripples. There's ripples in it. And and, and that's... I remember when I was uh, in, in college, I was living in Spain. And I was beginning to make my faith my own... And I was reading the Gospel of John where it talks about the invalid who's trying to make his way to the pool because whenever the waters were troubled, they would try to go in to the pool. And the waters of my heart were troubled. My time living in Spain was, was having this effect on me to cause me to look at the world differently and all the things I'd thought were, were being changed and, and something was unstable. And so I picked up the Bible for the first time in a long time and I started to read through the Gospel of John. And in that troubled state, it was as if the person of Jesus began to appear in front of me and I became presented with this question. And it wasn't that it was all easy and nice. It was hard, but it was real and it was true. And that's what these disciples 
disciples are going through, and maybe it's what you're going through this morning as well. When they were doubting, I love this phrase, they disbelieved for joy. What does that even mean? How do you disbelieve for joy? Well, I think it has to do with your head and your heart. You have those moments when your head and your heart can't catch up with each other? You're so excited to see this person that you love. And when we come to Jesus, there's something deep inside of us that resonates. You're the one I've always been looking for. And yet it's so massively expansive and it's, it's, it's so unbelievable in some ways that our heads have a hard time catching up to what is going on. We're just like these disciples. We talk about the big things of life, the eternal things, and the waters get troubled. And, and, and that's why Jesus' very first words, what are they? Peace to you. Peace to you. He knows his disciples so well. He knows that when he appears before them, after being dead, they're going to freak out. Peace to you. This morning, Jesus is repeating those words to you. Peace to you. As you consider what I've done, he's saying. As you consider my sacrifice, as you consider your life, peace to you. And then he calls them into faith. And it's so beautiful in verses 44 through 49 how Jesus does this. He, you can't whip up faith out of nothing. Okay, faith, it's a gift from God and it comes from the work of God in your life. And, and let's, just, let's just look at this. Jesus, he says, look, I understand that you're struggling to believe, so let me encourage your faith. And he asked them to consider his words, his person, and what he's done, and the spirit that he will send. Look in verse 44. To the troubled, startled, frightened, marveling disciples, he says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. One of the ways that our faith grows, that we find the faith to turn the key that is Jesus Christ, is through consideration of his word. And Jesus referring to the Old Testament. Now we have the Old Testament and the New Testament teaching about Jesus. When we ponder the 66 books that are our Bible, 39 different offers, uh, authors writing over 1,500 years. Can you believe that? 39 different authors writing over 1,500 years. And yet the whole message culminates together in the person of Jesus Christ, such that you have people 700 years ahead of time writing about 
what Jesus would actually be going through on the cross. And so when Jesus, 700 years later, is on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22, and he quotes one phrase from it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he does it as emblematic of the entire psalm. So if you go back this afternoon and you read Psalm 22, you'll see almost like the inner state of Jesus Christ as he's hanging on the cross. It's unbelievable. In Isaiah 53, the same thing. Somebody is behind this book. You cannot have 39 authors, many of whom never talked to each other over 1,500 years, write a book and have it be so consistent, so coherent, all centralized around the person of Jesus Christ. It's It's amazing. And when you ponder it, your faith grows. Your faith grows. Our faith grows because the word. It's not only that, it's that the word has this unique power to speak into our lives. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Anybody who has sat with the Bible for very long has had that experience. That it has a way of penetrating into your heart and discerning who you are. And helping you to understand yourself in relation to God. Even people who are skeptics find this to be true. Abraham Lincoln could not put the Bible down. And maybe you're a skeptic like he was. But maybe you want to keep reading this book. He quoted it constantly. He thought it was the most important book. He he, he read it more than any others. Um, Because there's something about... The word of God. The the disciples experienced it in in the passage just before. Looking up in verse 32. Jesus is explaining the whole Bible to them. And they say to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? You want faith. The faith that you need to unlock the door to heaven, that faith comes through the study and the intake of, Of the scriptures, the scriptures that point to Jesus Christ. Which leads us to the second faith inducement. First, it's the word, then it's Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ really is the key. Look with me in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. And here's what they understood from the scripture He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's what the Bible teaches from start to finish about who Jesus is. His suffering, we've talked about this a little bit already, is taking the sins of the world onto himself. The third day resurrection is proof that his atoning sacrifice was effective because the the consequence of sin is death. That's a principle in the, the foundation of the world that God created. The consequence of sin is death. Jesus took care of the sin problem on the cross so... The death problem must be overcome too, right? Oh, guess what? He rose from the dead. The resurrection is proof that the sin problem has been overcome. That's what it is. That's how it works. And then that message is supposed to go out to be offered to all. What a beautiful thing. To all nations, it says. This message is to be offered to... So if you're here this morning and you wonder, well, is this really for me? The answer is yes. It's for you. Not only that, that's how it works, but there's something even deeper about this. That what, what about that causes you to believe more strongly? Let me tell you what I think about that. It's because this 
message of the cross is ultimately saying, God loves you. God loves you fully, desperately, sacrificially. I was trying to think of how to get my mind around this, and I was thinking about when we had children in the very beginning, and you know, the, they're, they're little babies, and they have diapers, and you open up the diaper, and when they're really tiny, it's so cute, the diaper, the soiled diaper, right? And you open it up, and you, it kind of smells interesting even. It's not bad, you know. Uh, but then something happens in their little bodies, and their intestines start to grow, and things begin to change. And one day you open up the diaper and whoo, it's not like it was, right? But you love the child, so you enter into that foulness and you clean them up and you, and you take care of it. Well, let's just put that on the cosmic level, okay? God is perfectly holy. He's perfectly holy. No, really, there is no sin in him. There's no foulness, no evil, no anything. And yet he enters into this world fraught with suffering and evil and sin and foulness of all kinds to clean it up. We always uphold Mother Teresa because she would go into the darkest realms where there was disease and sickness and she would put her life at risk to be able to, 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 to help people. Well, God has done that on the cosmic level. That's, that's, what, that's what's going on when Jesus enters into this world and takes all of that foulness onto himself. And why would he do that? Just for the same reason that a parent changes a diaper. Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Because he loves you. And when you really come to terms with the reality of what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ and the beauty and the sacrificial nature of it, then you have to say, oh, God loves me. He must. Why else would he do this thing? And that increases our faith. And lastly, the presence of the Spirit increases our faith. Verse 49, and behold, Jesus says, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And that whole clothing with power happens A little while later in Jerusalem, when the disciples are gathered together and the Holy Spirit comes on them and they speak in tongues of fire and it's Pentecost and the church is birthed and they're empowered. And I would just say we're still living with the church. That's why we're gathered here, which means the Holy Spirit is still with us to empower us. And he moves in our lives. And sometimes we read a scripture and it comes to light for us. Or we hear a a proclamation of the gospel and it sears deep into our hearts. Or somebody speaks to us or, or we're in the quietness of prayer and God moves by his spirit in our lives. And he's still doing that today. And I just want to say if he's doing that in your life this morning... Steward it well. Steward it well. Don't arrogantly dismiss the work of God in your life as the Spirit moves. But respond openly. We love to talk about being open people. But are you open to the Holy Spirit working in your life this morning? To woo you and to call you into relationship. What you've desired from the day you took your first breath to be in relationship with a living God? Are you open to allowing Him to woo you into that relationship 
by His Spirit, centered around the person of Jesus Christ, activated by your response of faith. There's another room-entering verse that I want to close with. It's Revelation 3.20. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and be with him. And this is the invitation before us this morning. The living God has given us the key, Jesus Christ. We have it in our possession. We have Jesus here. He's done the work. He's been raised from the dead. It's all taken care of. Will you turn the key? Will you put the key in the lock and turn it? That's what faith is. It's saying, yes, let's do this. Let me put my trust in you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. Would you apply that atoning sacrifice to my sin to make me fit for heaven? Because I want to be there with you and with people that I love and in that gorgeous, incredible place. And you know what? This is true if this is your initial contact with God this morning and you're making this decision for the first time. But it's also true if you've been walking with with God for decades. The answer to your problems is still the same. You need Jesus in the room. You need Jesus in your life. And, And that happens the same way as it always has. When you place your confidence and your trust, when you look at whatever broken circumstances you might be in right now, and you say, but still God is on the throne, and if he could raise Jesus from the dead, he can raise me out of this mire. That's a statement of faith. God, help us to live by faith. Whether it's our first step or our thousandth step, it's only by faith. And so today we put our faith in Jesus, the center of all the Bible teaches and all of salvation and heaven and the future, we put our faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We ask during this time that you'd create a space where we could do business with you, we could ponder in our hearts and see you as the, the Jesus who stands at the door and knocks. We can hear your voice and and open the door and invite you in. We pray this in the precious name of that intercessor, Jesus Christ. Amen.